You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to Seek Up, the Yoga Inspiration Show. This episode is a deep and powerful conversation with Melanie Klein, who is one of the founding members of the Yoga and Body Image Coalition. Melanie is also an inspiring mentor to me in the fields of social justice. She's been an activist for decades, and her experience going over the marathon of social justice work is a true inspiration inspiration and light on the path for every yoga practitioner. I hope you enjoy this conversation and are inspired to put in the work, the real work of awakening. Thanks so much for joining, Melanie. I'm super excited to have you on the Yoga Inspiration Show. Um, for everyone who's listening, I'm really excited to have Melanie on as a guest because we've been um, working with one another in the field of personal growth and development and the psychology of all of that in the fields of yoga, life, and everything. So Melanie, thanks so much for coming on as a guest. I'm looking forward to this. I am too, you know, I mean, it's been a lot of years that we have now known each other, working both behind the scenes together and on public collaborations. And what I think has been just so incredibly fantastic is just uh, the overall surprise and delight that I've had in getting to know you and how that's allowed me to honestly grow as a person and as a public intellectual in terms of how can we have, you know, important conversations with um, people who may be operating in different social locations and may seem to have very different experiences and or different intentions and actually coming together um, human to human. It's been just such a pleasure and a joy to do that with you over the last few years. Oh, and for me too. So many people who are listening might know might not know about your work with the Yoga and Body Image Coalition. Um, perhaps you might like to share kind of what your work is with that and how you, and and what the message is that's carried forward in that amazing work. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to. So you know, I come from an academic background, a social justice background that goes back about it's crazy to say now twenty seven years, <laughs> and I recognize probably some people are listening going. I'm not, I'm not even 27 yet, but it's like, yeah, I, I started a long time ago in like the early to mid nineties doing that kind of work. And then was introduced to my first, um, yoga practice, which was really profound because this was at a time there weren't a lot of studios. There weren't a lot of teachers in the Los Angeles area. And I would say overwhelmingly in North America. And it, it was a Kundalini yoga class, which I have to say, um, still to a certain degree, I feel like it doesn't kind of quite get the attention um, that some of the more physical practices do. And back then it received even less. So to go to a yoga class in, in the early 90s and then on top of it, go to a Kundalini class with Kriya and Pranayama and all of that was really unusual. Um, and I landed there because my sister took me and it was such a game changer for me because I had already started doing, you know, deep academic work and study around sociology, gender, women's studies, media literacy, and found that um, that information was so liberatory for me and empowering for me. And then when I came to yoga, I didn't quite understand how that fit in. And I couldn't quite even explain 
what it was doing for me. I just know that the next day I had the really odd realization that my intercostal muscles, those muscles between the ribs Mm -hmm. were sore. I didn't even know that I had muscles there or what they, (laughs) what they did. And for me to, to go, Oh, okay. So clearly this is indication that I have not been very connected to my entire body. I have not been embodied and I haven't been breathing very deeply. That was, that Mm. kind of evoked my curiosity. And then couldn't put my finger on it, but things were subtly shifting and changing. I just knew I kept wanting to go back. And then eventually I wanted more. So I actually landed um, in Brian Kess Yoga Studio in Santa Monica. And uh, his rhetoric was very much all about not comparing, not competing, which kind of evoked my competitive fitness background that I had. (laughs) And I was like, oh, wow, there's another way to be in my body. And I know this is a really long answer to to your question, but I did not forget your question. And I mentioned this all because I think, you know, asking questions about, you know, what people put into the world, their work, their books, et cetera. I'm always so curious about what inspired them to get there before even finding out what Mm -hmm. the work is. And these are some of those formative moments that really inspired me. And when meditation and, and yoga came into the picture, there was sort of this amazing, you know, internal combustion. It's like everything clicked into place that I had the, this intellectual understanding. I had this ability to deconstruct the world around me. And now I had some tools to really deconstruct the ways that those messages had uh, come to live in my body, in my psyche. And that just was, I mean, that was the final sort of ignition for me. And when the yoga blogosphere started to kind of really take off, and I would say, I don't know, 2010, 2009, people in the yoga community, wellness community started to go online. Eventually, Facebook and social media came into the picture. I wanted to share how critical consciousness, how deep social justice work played a role and was sort of partners with this consciousness raising that I was learning in a different facet through yoga and meditation, how they paired together. And so I took the opportunity in this newly opening space to my first article that I ever wrote for Elephant Journal was actually on yoga, feminism, and body image, which I think were phrases that, especially in the wellness community, people did not ever see put together at that time. And really presented a compelling argument and personal story for the ways that they can really transform our relationships to our bodies, to ourselves, to each other, and how that can be the gateway into empowerment and social change. And I met Anna Guest Jelly in 20, later in 2010, and she was doing similar work. She was one of the first people to introduce uh, yoga for, she called it for curvy bodies. She introduced curvy yoga. And then shortly thereafter met Diane Bondi, who also brought in not only, you know, conversations about practicing in a larger body, but also practicing in a larger black body. And so between the three of us, we really began to have these critical conversations and was compelled to publish and curate the first book, Yoga and Body Image, which eventually Um, became the Yoga and Body Image Coalition because that was right around the time I started noticing there were a lot of 
people using the terms, you know, um, self-love and body liberation and all of these things. And they fell sort of flat. They were sort of being translated into hashtags and memes and slogans. And I felt they were really devoid of the deeper work that was required to make that happen, which included, to be quite honest, examining the yoga industrial complex, um, looking at the ways that you know bodies in yoga as well are commodified, sold, and objectified, and that to truly begin to create a space where transformation was possible, body acceptance was really prioritized, we could not you know, kind of shy away from those conversations. And so the coalition to me was a way that we could create a, a set of aggregated voices from all over who maybe felt isolated in doing this work where we could come together, amplify the message, really get the intention of large um, industries, uh, magazines, especially in yoga and wellness spaces, and begin to educate on a mass level and to hold people accountable for when they were looking to profit off these newly sort of minted catchphrases and buzzwords and to keep them really in integrity with what the work was about. So that was ultimately what the message was, a platform to amplify voices that were sort of on the margins, but also to create real education about where this work is rooted in terms of social justice, um, dismantling systems of repression. So that was my super long answer to your super short question. So no, Melanie, thank you for sharing. And it's really clear that you've been on the forefront of some really pioneering work in terms of deconstructing some deeply held biases and assumptions that permeate not only the yoga world, but, you know, the world at large. So there's a lot that I want to kind of unpack and, and dive into. But maybe the first question is, what was the response of the yoga and wellness community when you, uh, you know, first started doing this work? I know that you mentioned that that first uh, Elephant Journal article that you wrote that those those terms, you know, yoga, feminism, and body image weren't really, uh, you know, put together in such a way as is as it is now, for example. So, what what was the response like from people in the yoga community, from you know, established businesses in the yoga community, colleagues, teachers, students? and just everyone in between? You know, it was really, um, I think it was a mixed bag. So there wasn't an overall response one way or the other. There was really a massive kind of gradation across the spectrum. Um, on one hand, I was able to meet so many colleagues, allies, and you know, lifelong friends that I've had now, um, such as Anna Guest Jelly, such as Diane Bondi, um, Chelsea Jackson Roberts, who's now over at Peloton and Lululemon was, uh, you know, writing in the space at the time, Carol Horton, um, a variety of other people. And so I met some really fantastic people um, who also had similar sort of perspectives that weren't getting a lot of recognition that weren't being published in mass. Uh, they were off in their various corners having these conversations, doing this work. And, you know, that first article then linked me to other writers that were starting to come into the fray that were writing about related topics. In fact, that then ended up becoming the first anthology that I did not um, curate, but it was Carol Horton and Roseanne Harvey uh, in 2012. I was asked to be a contributor for 21st Century Yoga, uh, Culture, Politics, and Practice. Um, that book really 
captured some of the first voices that were starting to have these critical conversations. And so there was this wonderful sense of solidarity and the ability to commune and connect and I think a sense of relief, like, oh, there are others out there. Okay, fantastic. How can we collaborate? How can we uplift each other? How can we allow this work to grow? So that was really wonderful. And a lot of people who were excited, maybe they weren't in you know, a variety of leadership positions. Maybe they weren't teaching either yoga or meditation. Maybe they weren't you know, teaching on any of these subjects in more formal settings, but they were you know, practicing yoga. They were in the culture of yoga. And they had maybe some inklings and some questions and some thoughts that were now being formulated and presented in a new way that um, captured what they were feeling and what they, you know, kind of were, you know, thinking about a lot. And so there was that, the excitement, the curiosity, the connection. And then on the other hand, there were a lot of people who were really annoyed um, and that were off put uh, in terms of, oh, how, how dare we all of a sudden talk about feminism or, you know, gender women's um, issues, uh, LGBTQ issues, trans issues, um, bring in race and ethnicity, like this is not the space, this is an apolitical space is kind of the, the overwhelming se- sentiment that, that I got. I remember I had uh, done a sh- very short piece on some of the PETA ads that were happening at the time. There was one with Pamela Anderson. And so you know, I presented this idea of objectification and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of got the um, response from a lot of people that I should just, oh, honey, just, just breathe. It's just sexism. <laughs> like, you know, that we, we, we can throw this uh, under the bus. We can throw women under the bus for the sake of saving animals. And I thought to myself, there are so many values within the wellness community, which is, you know, it's a broad term, but it's the best one I can think of right now, that if we're talking about you know, uh, animal rights and food politics and things, you can't have that conversation without having it also intersect with conversations about class and socioeconomic status, with race, with ethnicity, um, looking at, you know, the global community, looking at colonization, ageism, sizeism, all of the isms, like, how, how do you have that conversation and isolate them? I felt that there was There were just these very select issues that people were willing to entertain and talk about, but anything further felt really off-putting and a violation of their sacred space. The idea being yoga and meditation is where I disconnect and then I go back in the world and I can sort of have a leave it up to the universe attitude which to me was really problematic because it's like, oh, this is a really privileged place to be in. Uh, I get, let's disconnect from the cacophony of voices that are trying to sell us things or trying to interrupt our peace, but let's go in there to fortify ourselves so that when we step off the mat or the cushion, we can be inspired, revitalized, nourished, um, have more clarity so that we can take right action. I felt that that part of the equation was was really missed. And it was being missed because there were a lot of people who didn't need to then take any kind of collective action. They just wanted to have those moments of peace that were very um, personal, independent, and not connected to the collective. And and that troubled me because um, for me, I, I couldn't understand how anybody could separate the two. It just seemed so naturally to go together. So um, I spent time feeling very compelled to bring to light all of the things that I had 
spent many years studying and learning and, you know, going, taking into praxis and sharing it because I felt if there was any community and space that could be very effective in making change and taking right action, it would be one supposedly dedicated to, you know, really developing one sense of spirituality, connection, and wellness. And so that's what I continued to do, but it was very mixed. There was the excitement in the community. And then there were people who felt like, oh, you're jacking my vibe and, you know, good vibes only. And how dare we soil this zone by talking about things that are essentially inconvenient for us, right? Kind of, if we think about Al Gore's film, an inconvenient truth mm-hmm. is like, you're bringing all these inconvenient truths into, you know, into my yoga practice, into my spiritual practice, and I'm not interested and I kept thinking also of um, Quakers, you know, it was so fascinating to study them about their involvement in, you know, indigenous rights, in, you know, women's rights and the suffrage movement, the temperance movement, um, all of these different movements, I would have never suspected because I had this vision in my mind of like the old white dude on the Quaker oats box, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like they're, you know, these people are really conservative. They're really whatever. I had this stereotype in my head. And when I started to learned that they were really at the forefront of most of these movements at the, you know, in the 1800s, early 1900s, it was because their notion of God was that every person and every living thing was made equally, that God, and if we think about patriarchal cultures, right, the ultimate ruling authority, the ultimate patriarch saw everyone as equal, that if you saw any kind of social injustice, part of your practice part of your duty to God, because these were very, you know, their faith was very strong. Their entire world was built upon their faith and their connection to God was we go and social justice is our spiritual practice. Mm. And so to me, I'd always taken that particular lens of, yeah, our spiritual practice is social justice in action. We become better people. We become more resilient. We, be, we begin to flourish and thrive within ourselves so that we can go ahead and take action in whatever way moves us. And this is going to obviously be very different, you know, for everybody, right? I, I, it's not a one-size-fits-all form of activism. You know, we somehow have a cape with an A for activist on our chest and we're going out in the world. But, you know, how are we communicating with our children? How are we in relationship? What do we buy? What do we eat? Who do we vote for? How do we give back? And what does that look like? What is our capacity, our capability? Um, and so I, I just felt like there were some real contradictions and some double standards and hypocrisy that was happening uh, at this time. And I felt like there was another opportunity to, to do it differently if we kind of zoomed out and looked at things more holistically. And so that's what I wanted to continue to do is kind of take all the naysayers and the people who wanted to opt out and show them why it's important and why they're connected to the thread that we can't just opt out because we think we're separate. Like we are connected in all of this. Melanie, there's so much in what you're saying that I feel is just so, so, so essential to what, what you could call the, you know, the spiritual path or spiritual practice and the concept of yoga being an apolitical space 
is also a similar concept to assuming that a spiritual practice is an apolitical space. And while that's potentially nice in theory, as you mentioned with the, you know, with the example of the Quakers, there's always an intersection between the spiritual path and social justice or the spiritual path and social oppression. You know, it's the, it's the philosophy, the ethos, the ethics of a, a society that, you know, codifies its virtues for good and for bad. And, you know, in the yoga community, there's there there are many people who didn't come into it understanding that it was a spiritual path that came into it just you know practicing the physical side of it. And from that perspective, I could understand the people who don't know that yoga is a spiritual path, and then then being kind of put off by you know the the the, the demand to do social justice work. However, I think that. In many ways, uh, I think the tides have somewhat turned, although I think there's still vast pockets of resistance to any sort of critical deconstructivist thinking in, you know, in yoga spaces. There, there are definitely, you know, still pockets of people who would rather just not engage on that level. Um, but I do, I do feel, and I don't know if you do too, that, that the tides somehow really started to shift. If you do feel that way. When do you think, like, was there a turning point or do you still feel like that they haven't shifted yet? Um, good question. So before I even answer that, I want to go back just a few beats to something else that you said that really resonated and I felt should be amplified a little bit. You were talking about, oh, you know, the idea that certain spaces are apolitical, should be, et cetera. I mean, the truth is nothing is apolitical and that, you know, we we do have this, you know, incredible connection through everything. Everything is integrated and intersected. I mean, if we just think in terms of the ecosystem, if we think about culture and that kind of invisible web that binds us through communication and language, like the idea that we can somehow compartmentalize or um, you know see ourselves or things as mutually exclusive is just a really interesting perspective. I just don't see how that happens. You know, both as a sociologist, as someone who practices yoga and meditation and has for a very long time as someone who studied media literacy and the flow of culture, like I just, that idea is just so odd to me, right? And I think that becomes part of the problem that people feel that relationship situations, different demographics, different ideas can somehow be separated. They really can't. It is all connected. And to take that even further, you know, if we look back at the um, 1960s and 70s, uh, the feminist movement then, one of the really powerful and big slogans of the era was the personal is political. And that was introduced because there was a notion that women's lives were completely unimportant, that women's lives were mundane, and that all things gendered feminine, like housework, childcare, etc., was just completely separated from what has been called the public sphere or the domain of men who go into the world and do things things and the idea that women are at home. And we really see this coming about with the separation of what was called the family economy, where in rural agricultural spaces, right, um, you had families working together, let's say, on the land, and there was no public or private sphere. And as that began to break apart, it was like the domain of men, the domain of women, right? The public and the private. And what happens in the private, that personal space is unimportant women don't do anything worthwhile. And so the personal is political was, hey, you can't separate what happens in the bedroom, in the home from politics, right? That they are all interconnected and they're all important to study, understand, and to use. So similarly, right, this whole idea of the personal is political 
that yoga is political, that anything is political um, is true. There's nothing that's separate. Our political policies and legislation, our political values and norms make their way into every aspect of society because society isn't a bunch of separate spheres where, you know, religion sits in this corner, economics sits in this corner, education's over here, and they're not touching, they don't see or hear each other. No, they're all of these concentric spheres that are overlapping. So obviously yoga and meditation and our personal practices, our spiritual practices are obviously going to be informed by those larger values and norms. So just really wanted to state that. And then the answer to your most recent question, I do think there's been actually a tremendous change. I am really, really um, astounded, to be quite honest, in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, I've had conversations with Diane and Anna over the years where this is what we intended, but it has exceeded our expectations. There are, I really don't think I could have imagined the number of people and the institutions, uh, and I'm talking even outside of yoga, if I'm looking at like the Athleta catalog and I'm looking, um, you know, uh, at, at Nike and even, oh my gosh, how far Lululemon's come. Let's even include yoga journal. My goodness, I've had so many conversations even in the last year with some of these large companies who seven years ago, six years ago, were in a very different space. And when I look at the content and who's landing on the cover and I look at the stories and I look at the classes and workshops and uh, trainings that are being offered and you know, even, quote, influencers, who they're sharing their platform with, what they're amplifying, what they're talking about, I'm like, oh, wow, okay. We've really, really, yes, we've come a long way. And I would say especially in the last three to four years. And it seems to grow and increase every single year. And with that said, then we still continue to have, you know, those spaces where there's a dearth of representation or um, there is a lack of accountability for one's voice and platform. And as much as that sometimes can dismay me, I'll be really honest, I keep looking at the longitudinal results and zoom out and think, okay, yes, but I'm going to keep my eye on how much progress has been made. I'm going to keep my eye on um, how these are no longer just exceptions, but we're really creating a new norm. And that honestly, everybody is at a different point of growth. And I used to be a real pessimist. <laughs> I used to be really <laughs> cynical. And I always say that I was such a cynic because I had such an, a fragile optimist's heart. That was my way to protect it, right? As I've grown in myself and my practice, it's been safer and I've been much more confident in just sort of embodying the optimism and the tendency to feel if people could do better, they would, and that they can, and they probably will. And so I have stayed in this realm of work to fill in some of the gaps and to have conversations with people who are maybe new to this, right? There's always going to be new people coming into this. And um, I, I want to welcome them into these conversations. I want to kind of continue to stoke their curiosity so that the conversations become more balanced. They become equitable in every single way that people can be heard and people can be open to learning. People can learn how to listen and that the emotional labor and toll doesn't go on the most marginalized of communities, that this is part of the work that I have chosen to take on at this point. 
because I know that if anybody had judged me on the kind of feminist or the kind of activist I was in the first few years, um, I, I might've shrunk or I might've felt intimidated or might've been longer or more challenging. And that, you know, I always felt welcome to grow and I want other people to feel welcome to grow and to be curious. And so when I see those gaps, I think maybe not yet, but this is also going to change. And I'm excited to see how that's going to change. And I'm excited to help that change come along as well. There's a, there, there's an interesting concept about creating, you know, creating a new norm. And I, I mean, you mentioned that you feel like now that there, that there is a change. And so I think let, let's acknowledge that, that there's, that there has been a shift. I, I definitely feel it too, but in the creation of a new norm, what does that actually look like, you know, in terms of the impact that it has on people's lives? So, and this is something that I find to, to make to make the intangible or intellectual tangible. So that what does that mean for, say, someone visiting the Lululemon website who uh, maybe someone who's younger, who's a twelve year old twelve year old person that's visiting the website now, and and what's the actual impact that those changes are going to make in, say, the next generation who are going to stand on the shoulders of this this new norm, and what is the new norm that's being kind of, you know, created and, and propagated and, and embraced really by so many, so many members of society now. God, I love having conversations like this. Like as I was listening <laughs> to your question, I was like, ah, so exhilarating to have these discussions. It's so much fun for me. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it lights me up and I just always laugh going, yep, it's been lighting me up for 27 years consistently. And that just gives me so much, you know, joy and pleasure. Um, so I just wanted to add that, that you know, sometimes people feel that this is just all so taxing and overwhelming. And actually, there's so many points of joy and pleasure in this process, not just the interpersonal learning um, and then, you know, action taking, but in the larger collective, it should, there should be those exhilarating moments. And so for me, this is one of them. And I wanted to, to state that and hopefully inspire some of the listeners to feel like, yeah, you know what? I don't have to take this view that it's going to be just emotionally taxing and arduous because sometimes people see uh, mm -hmm. personal growth that way. It really should, uh, it should be something that we love on throughout the entire, you know, process. So with that, your question, I'm going to share a really short story to exemplify that. So when my son is 12 right now, when he was about four or five, he asked me a question, um, about why there had been no women presidents. Okay. And keep in mind, obviously, I am his mother. He has really, uh, you know, strong female role models, not just from me, but his grandmother and his great grandmothers. Like they really have a strong presence. They're really formidable, right? Meaning inspiring and just like awesome. And he'd been in my classrooms and he'd been at my book signing. So He'd just been really aware of the things that I talk about, not because I was telling him specifically, but he's, you know, he's picking up information and he's seeing a lot of diversity. And so when he asked that question, I remember we had a conversation, but I thought to myself, the fact that this person at four or five is asking me why there's been no female president is pretty profound because a lot of people had never asked that question because it was expected on some subconscious level that president equals men, president equals white men, president equals white older man with money, right? Leadership is male, so on and so forth. And so for him, because he had had 
such a different experience of what leadership looks like, what power looks like, the roles that people can take for him, he saw the gap, right? And so I always say that when we're first breaking a norm, okay, a norm is what we would call a rule or standard of behavior. And those norms are based on our values. So we can think of the value as the more intangible. It's the thought, it's the idea, it's the expectation. And then the norms or the behaviors grow out of that. So for example, um, if we go to you know, the 1800s and we're thinking about one of the values when it came to women was modesty. So women were literally dressed <laughs> right from their chins to their heels and then had hats and gloves. So uh, the norm, the standard way of dressing, that behavior was based on the value of modesty. So if we think about our gendered values, that is going to translate into a dearth of representation at all levels of institutional life. And so when you break a norm, people tend to be aware when a norm is broken. Um, they tend not to be aware when the norm is operating. So for example, um, if you, you know, looking at, especially I would say fitness magazines, fashion magazines, five to 10 to 15 years ago, you're flipping through the pages and let's say you saw a, you know, a, a large size body. Um, if you saw a person with a visible physical disability, um, if you saw a woman or a model with, let's say, incredibly dark skin, you would kind of stop and pause and go, oh, because that's not what you're used to seeing. But you didn't stop and pause, you know, page after page going, oh, another, you know what I mean? White, thin, able-bodied, young, right? Because that's what you would expect to see. So when we break a norm, that usually stands out. Sometimes it makes the norm visible. When we create a new norm, we basically create a new expectation of behavior based on that new value set. So for example, now young children expect to see, uh, well, it depends on, I guess, what part of the country in the world, but <clears throat> in many places in the country now, they will expect to see some diversity. So when my son and I were watching the Oscars a couple weeks ago, I have to say there are times I want to cry, Kino, when I'm looking at the stories that are being created, the people who write them, direct them, produce them, star in them, if they're, you know, female-centered story, POC-centered story, et cetera. I'm like, oh my God, just even four years ago, five years ago, you didn't see that at all. Hence, Jada Pinkett Smith, you know, created the hashtag or was one of the people with Oscars so white. It's like, oh, another film by a white male director featuring, you know, so on and so forth. So we want to get to the place where we're creating a new norm that we have really sort of reconfigured our value system and that then translates into the expectations of behavior in terms of who is in leadership, who has the ability to speak, um, who has access to resources, who is being recognized for their work, um, so on and so forth to the point where nobody has to stop and say, oh, wow, Running Magazine featured, you know, a, a woman in a larger body on the cover which is what happened. I think it was five or six years ago. I was in Boston actually giving a, a speech and the new issue of Running Magazine came out. And I remember Tina Veer and I, who's she's part of the Yoga and Body Image Coalition too, we looked at, we're like, I, we've never seen anything like this, especially on the cover of a running magazine, right? And I remember thinking, ah, oh, that's what I'd been telling a, a major yoga publication for years. 
we need to put, you know, a, a person with a larger size body on the cover of magazine, totally resistant. Running magazine didn't, and it stood out. Well, now we're getting to the place where we're seeing people, you know, who are over 50 and even 60 on the cover of yoga magazines, magazines beyond the yoga and wellness sphere, people with larger bodies, physical disabilities, so on and so forth, to the point where when we stop pausing to acknowledge it, we know that we've created something new and that this is a set a new template for what's possible in the world, who you can be, what you can expect to do, what it could look like, how we value other people, how we see other people, right? Because when we're advocating for the rights of particular groups, it's, it's not somehow just about that group. It's about all of us, right? I, I always say, what happens when we value girls and women across the board? It's not just good for them, right? And there's tons of research that supports it, but it's also important for boys and men. And what will that do? Well, think about the epidemic of violence against women, right? You begin to really handle that sexism and same with racism. I guarantee you, right? And that's the conversation. We're going to go ahead and eliminate that gender-based or race-based violence when we begin to actually see these individuals as full and fully dimensional humans capable and worthy of really occupying all, all seats in society. I think that the no the new norm is definitely already out there. You know, when we flip through the pages of of a, of a I, I can't remember the last time I've actually done it and flipped through a page of a magazine, but you know, even if you see like new TV programs and new um, you know movies and things like that, the array of different different um, ethnicities that are actually represented in the diversity of the cast is noticeable, and some of the some of the phrases that are are just kind of casually dropped as though it's accepted knowledge in, in our culture has been a huge shift, you know? And I, 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 I hope it really does translate to, you know, the, an actual change in the feeling of the way um, members of marginalized groups navigate society and believe in themselves, you know? So if we can take a look at the change say, I really love that you brought up this um, public-private dichotomy that has been so pivotal in uh, the, the the kind of classification of, of the women's role, because that, you know, that can be traced back to, to a, you know, all the way back to the Victorian era, right? Maybe even long before then. And to to see the impact of, of, of challenging that, deconstructing that, and where society's gone with that, to think that now there are other biases that are in there, that are out there, that yes, maybe a particular group of women uh, got some privileges and then the work doesn't stop there. So... I, I and and I, I can I can feel the difference of you know standing on the shoulders of all of the feminists that have come before me, and I'm really curious to see you know what 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 human beings like your son, like people who are born right now, end up actually creating when they come of age and when they're in charge. So when you talk about you know being an optimist, I feel like the best hope is in you know like the next generation. The best hope is in those those on those who are standing on our shoulders of all the work that that's put in because you know growth is slow. So I wanted to talk about to talk about growth. I mean maybe it's not slow. Like maybe it happens in a moment, but I feel like that that momentary shift is often preceded very much like the yoga practice by a lot of failure and a lot of mistakes. 
And a lot of times that people get it wrong and particularly in the tenuous zones of, you know, race, ethnicity, social justice, body image. There are many times that people may say the wrong thing, make corporations, businesses may do the wrong thing, and then they make a giant mistake and then they learn and grow from, from it. But how does that pan out in terms of, you know, the public sphere, the private sphere, you know, we might be able to, you know, make a mistake, pick ourselves up, learn course correct. And that could be a very private endeavor. Um, when a public company does that, how, how, how does that pan out when, when an influencer does that, how does that pan out? You know, is it, is it possible to, 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 to fail up potentially in, in this, in the culture that we're in now, is it possible to, to showcase our mistakes and, and grow and learn and evolve in, in a very public uh, society that we live in now? What do you think? Yes. And I, I want to really quickly go back to when you were saying, you know, the, the best hope is in the next generation and it'll be so exciting to see what else gets created and how people feel and what they do. I mean, you're right. We are in the process of building that new norm. I don't think we're at the end of the equation, but we're certainly deep in it. We're not in the, I don't, we're not in the initial phases, right? That uh, running magazine that I had told you about that had featured the, the plus size model that was uh, in 2015. And BuzzFeed at the time had um, shared an article saying the uh, God, a running magazine put a plus size model on its cover and people are into it. This is what a runner looks like, which by the way, <laughs> I was like, I, I see you BuzzFeed staff because the slogan that I had been using at the Yoga and Body Image Coalition is this is what a yogi looks like based on the uh, slogan that the Feminist Majority Foundation looked like, which is, this is what a feminist looks like. Because I had to do a whole PSA about that uh, in about mm, 2006 to 2008. They were really trying to deconstruct what it meant to be a feminist. And so I was inspired to use that for what it meant to be someone who practiced yoga. And so I thought that was so cool that they're like, yeah, this is what a runner looks like. There's many ways to, to run. There's many ways to practice yoga. There's many ways to be. There's many ways to gain. There's many ways to fill in the blank, right? And the new norm will happen when there's no headline at all. There's no announcement that needs to be made. There's no, you know what I mean? There's no promotional rollout that has to highlight what's being done differently. It's just expected. And I can definitely say that, you know, for, for my son, um, last year with COVID, yes, there was more screen time. Okay. And that included some gaming, something I never thought I would have in my house. And yet it turned out to be amazing. And he was playing Fortnite and he came to show me one of his new skins, one of the new characters um, that he was. And uh, I remember looking at it and it was, um, he had several female skins, if you will. He had female characters. And I asked him, I said, oh, wow. Like, uh, is it just you or do your other friends, you know, boyfriends also use skins like this? He's like, uh, yeah. And he looked at me like I was weird. Like, well, yeah, of course. Where I know growing up and even 10 years ago, the idea of doing anything, quote, like a girl was considered to be losing status or value. And so one example is, is that, that there is no judgment. It's not something odd that boys who are considered to have, quote, more value in a patriarchal culture no longer are viewing things related with girls and women as somehow being beneath them or a way to lose status. And that's a win-win for everybody. So that was the other thing I wanted to add when, when you were talking about this. It's having this kind of diversity, having this kind of possibility is a win-win for every single person. 
And it's a win-win for our culture and our society because we really begin to have the opportunity to benefit from people's talents and skills and watching them flourish as opposed to really having it be a loss of resources, a loss of talent, a loss of creativity, so on and so forth. And personal growth, (laughs) as long as it's not happening on social media, right, can certainly be a more comfortable place where we can embrace our mistakes and hopefully, by the way, I'll add, hopefully grow. I know that at earlier points in my life, I did not grow from my mistakes. I just made them over and over and over again, right? But hopefully with some level of self-reflexivity and awareness, we actually use them as fuel. And so same thing applies to companies, to be quite honest, or influencers. Hopefully they will grow. But I've also seen many companies year after year, incident after incident, make tons of mistakes and continue to make the stakes, mistakes, not listen, not use opportunities to grow, which can be really aggravating, right? For the people who are watching this happen. Um, and yet that doesn't have to be the way it is. Like, I think if people can really learn how to listen, employ a little bit of humility, not go on the defense and try to have to prove that they're good and that they have good intentions, but they're really taking a new approach. There is so much room to, like you said, fail uh, forward to succeed. And I've seen various influencers and companies and corporations really begin to do that. Some longer than others, but um, it absolutely is possible. But it does require a little, you know, in-house shifting in terms of, you know, as much as a person would a company, right, a team reassessing their values, being clear on their intention and their why, not to just be, quote, politically correct or to be politically relevant, um, not just about their bottom line, but truly having to create some, um, you know, just internal shifts that allow those things to align. And I can tell you some people have done it really authentically and with full integrity and others have done those things, but from the outside, it's been pretty clear that the motivation wasn't so much about the equity or the new values and norms, but it's been more about, hey, we want to continue to do business. Let's go ahead and throw some people of color on our website. Let's go ahead and throw in some women, but then there's no women and no people of color you know, on their board, on their team, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. that's a mixed bag too. It's hard to tell, you know, um, looking from the imagery, because I, I've definitely seen over the last couple of years that it's like every every company has that, you know, does work in or, or sell products, definitely in the fitness and definitely in the yoga sphere has definitely gotten the message that, you know, some form of inclusivity and diversity, at least on their on their public website is absolutely necessary and, and, and great. So that's wonderful. So that's awesome. And it's hard to filter through about, well, well, as a consumer, say out there as a yogi saying, okay, I'm really inspired by this. This is awesome. I want to support companies that are part of creating the new norm that are part of the change. I want to be part of the change. And a very effective way for people to do that if, um, you know, if is to vote with their dollars, right. To support companies that align with the ideals of social justice and to uh, really take a stand for that on a personal consumer basis. And it's hard from the outside looking in to figure out 
which company is doing that authentically and which company is just doing that, you know, just to check off the boxes of tokenism and, you know, kind of just try to win this, this sort of first glance approval. It's difficult. So how does a conscious consumer out there, a, you know, someone who's going to do the work of social justice and is really inspired about the intersection of yoga, spirituality, and social justice, how do they navigate the space? Well, I mean, listen, I, I've been doing this for a really long time. And for anyone, it, it is a lifelong journey of continuing to educate, re-educate yourself, you know, um, being open and available to new information, new conversations. So it, it's ongoing. And with that said, I always come back to some of the, you know, kind of formative aspects of just media literacy education overall. Media literacy education was something that came into uh, really play in the late 1980s when there were a lot of people who were like, listen, we're not looking to, you know, censor anything. We're not looking to do away with media. We really just want to go ahead and make sure that people can become more educated consumers because we're inundated, inundated with this information and we want to know how to filter it. So we really want to be able to deconstruct and understand the messages that are happening who's creating them and why. And so, you know, media literacy gets us to really ask the question, who's created this message? Uh, what is the reason that they created this message? What, what are some of the things encoded in this message? Um, what do they want me to do? Why do they want me to do this? Why, what do they want me to buy? Why do they want me to buy it? Who is, you know, who's on the board? Who's being represented? Who's part of the conversation? It's really just a lot of your basic questions, the who, what, where, why, et cetera, where we are just more engaged with what we are coming into contact with as opposed to kind of just um, being spoon-fed information. I know many, many years ago, uh, I had gone to a uh, the Z Media Institute out in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This was 1997. And we were learning how to create alternative forms of media and how to decode media, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd been away for a couple of weeks and Woods Hole is a non-advertising town. And I didn't really realize what was missing for the first three days. I was like, this place looks weird. I can't figure it out. <laughs> What's going on here? And my friend was like, ah, there's no ads. There's no signs. There's no billboards. I was like, oh, wow. I'm so used to seeing it. I didn't know when it was removed. By the time I came home to Los Angeles after being away, I was so overwhelmed with the amount of stimulation, you know, that was coming at me. I was mm -hmm. driving down this major thoroughfare and just like, whoa, my brain was trying to consciously take in every single thing. And I had that moment of increased awareness, like, wow, I'm taking this stuff in every single day. I'm just not taking it in consciously. It's just going into my subconscious and create a framework of, uh, or a filter through which I see everything. So Oh, they're all grabbing for my attention, but it's just kind of, you know, bypassing that main filter and, and going in and media literacy education is about being again, conscious. It's not having it just bypass your conscious mind, but really being engaged and then being able to choose and understand. So that's really the best answer that I can give mm -hmm. is for consumers to begin to ask really, really critical questions and not just take for granted the messages that they're receiving. 
and not be programmed, right? So there's this element of subconscious programming that so that happens with all of the is all of our you know media interactions. So I love this concept of media literacy. I, I love empowering people to do the work on their own terms and 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 to and to take that you know to to take that into real life implications. I, I did I I somehow when I first started practicing yoga, that was my wake up moment. You know, I started to question you know where does this food come from? Where does this clothing come from? What's this lipstick made out of? Where did the materials that made this come from? And ask all of those questions. So it is, it's a process. It's, it's, you know, a lot to take on, but you know, it's just like anything you can find the resources so easily now. Right. I mean, imagine like, as you mentioned, 27 years ago, if you wanted to find out who is on the board of a company, what you had to go through versus now you can just do a quick Google search and figure out what's um, you know, what, what, what each company is actually standing for. And, and, and do the research. So uh, like, it's an amazing time to actually be empowered as an individual. Yeah. And with that, there's really no excuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that we have, we have access to all of this information. We have the ability to connect to, you know, various educational groups and advocacy groups. Like it, it is, it's made really easy for us. So the idea that, you know, we don't have the time or the ability um, depending on, I mean, you know, depending on if you are, don't have access to technology, there is a digital divide, right? We do have to keep that in mind, but overwhelmingly, um, you know, people have devices and they, they can have that. So it's like, well, if you really want to, you can, and then it comes to a question of, do you want to? And if not, how come, right? Mm-hmm. How, how is this keeping you safe? And how is this keeping you comfortable? Because, you know, if we're talking about privilege, one of the things that I've always taught on that, you know, privilege for the most part tends to be taken for granted and unexamined. First reason uh, is that most people aren't aware, you know, at first that they have privilege. It's, it's just their kind of default way of being. And oftentimes people assume, well, the way it is for me, it is for everybody, right? Like I'm not even aware that I'm in a privileged position. Um, this, you know, it just seems normal or normative. Uh, the second reason that a lot of people don't, you know, have conversations around privilege is that they feel guilt, they feel shame, um, they feel uncomfortable about having that conversation. And that's why I say having a level of humility and a desire to listen um, really should kind of overshadow any potential guilt. And it's like, well, you know, how can I get out of my own feelings and how can I listen and, and, and be aware of the larger picture? But the third reason, um, oftentimes privilege and certain advantages are not talked about is because people benefit. <laughs> so, you know, uh, the idea that uh, I, I'm not aware of these issues, I can't do anything about it, I don't know how, oftentimes it's really about people who are comfortable and either consciously or unconsciously don't want to create shifts because they benefit from the status quo or the way mm-hmm. things are currently. So if people are looking for uh, resources to continue to do this, this the personal the personal work that it takes to really make a change, where can where do you recommend that they that they go? Can are there places that they can hear more and learn more from you? Are there easy resources that you would recommend for people for for especially for yoga practitioners to go to to put in the work? Yeah, I mean, there are so many resources everywhere. Uh, sort of a quick way to begin is if they do want to check out the work of the Yoga and Body Image Coalition and the sort of, you know, the community um, allies and community activists that are a part of that, there's a, so, there are so many amazing people and organizations that they can find through that one uh, funnel, if you will. 
And there is more to be learned. Um, I have published over the years now, let's see, four anthologies sort of integrating these themes in, in various ways. The first one being yoga and body image. There are 25 contributors there. There's a resource guide at the end. Um, there is also a free downloadable discussion guide at the uh, Yoga and Body Image Books website. It should also be on the Coalition's website. So if people want to think more critically about the essays and the content, it's a great um, sort of support to do that on your own or to potentially do it in small groups, right? I, I had that created on purpose. Um, Yoga Rising, the second one, which is about what happens when we do create peace and acceptance with ourselves. How do we become, you know, an agent of change? Yoga Rising on both the Coalition website and the Yoga Rising book website has another free downloadable discussion guide that can be really useful for people. And there are 30 writers in that book. Also another resource guide at the end, different organizations, et cetera. And uh, the most recent trade paperback um, came out last fall called Embodied Resilience Through Yoga. Also, I mean, dozens and dozens of incredible writers. There are a series of prompts and meditations created by Michelle Johnson's that are in each of the sections of the book, um, which is another great way to begin to think about the material, understand the material, reflect on the material. And then there's, again, a whole host of really incredible writers writing on resilience from grief, trauma, addiction, loss, so on and so forth that I think those are really handy starting points. And then, you know, if this is new for any listeners here, this opens up a whole new world of people doing this work in various ways, a variety of stories, and again, organizations and resources that they can utilize. Melanie, thank you so much for your time, for your hard work in this valuable field over the long haul. You really showed that this is, you know, a marathon, not a sprint. It's not a moment, but it's a lifelong commitment. And I think that's so inspiring for so many people to, you know, to, to, to hear, to see, to get to, to get the feeling of the, the beautiful human being that you are. So thank you so much for coming on this podcast and sharing everything that you do. I really, really appreciate it. And I, I look forward to many more conversations conversations with you in the future. You know, thank you so much for having me. And I so appreciate you, your entire team, your platform, and all of the listeners today. It's just really um, very, very grateful to be able to do this. Thank you. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. 
Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.